Hello, my lovers. Welcome to the Avon Vodcast. Merry Christmas. In the grand tradition of these things, I thought I'd tell you an eerie, true story from the island's past. There are a few to choose from. The runner-up was one that began with the lines, Extinguish all your lights at night, and rattle all the locks. Go to sleep, lay down your head, beware the thing that knocks. <laughs> but when I suggested it, none of the staff seemed keen. And after a few nights of an even colder silence than they usually muster, I got the hint. So, it's this one. Last episode, we read the diary of a visitor to the island. This time, we're reading from the journal of a lord. I chose this not solely because of the story, terrifying and troubling though it is, but because it also details some of the island's festive traditions. Being, currently, the only non-native on the island, little of it is happening this year. Though the staff at the hall have decorated the house with garlands of coloured glass fishing floats with candles inside. And I'm told that for lunch we'll dine on roasted conger, which I'm sure is tastier than it sounds. Anyway, it's Christmas Eve. Turn the lights low, pour a drink, and listen as I read. I'm calling this You Shouldn't Take It With You. It's a little longer than the others. Think of it as a Christmas present, rather than the ramshackle and unplanned outcome of wildly inconsistent project planning that it is. <clears throat> Some time ago, a friend of mine wrote to me the most peculiar letter. As it led, in turn, to a series of events that remain the most curious and dreadful to befall me in my long life, I set the story down here to record accurately the terror that occurred here that Christmas. And though I can affirm, for I witnessed the aftermath with my own eyes, that every word is true, I leave it to my reader to believe it or not. It began, as I said, with a letter. My friend, a Mr. James, was a man I had known since our days together at Oxford. The son of a reverend, James had studied archaeology with me at Evelyn College, and we had become firm friends. An intense and probing mind, he threw himself into the dark corners of our study. And so it was no surprise that upon our passing out, he began to make a name for himself as an antiquary, with a particular interest in the more esoteric fields available to him. I had not heard from him for many years, but knew through mutual acquaintances that he'd returned to his father's home in Carlisle, as the old man was by that point elderly, and needed help to fulfil his duties in the parish. So it was with delight that I recognised his scrawling handwriting on the envelope of the letter that reached me, towards the end of that November. It read, My friend, 
I am sorry to write with a request after such a long time apart, but I must, and you are the only one that can help. I will explain more should you accept, but for now know this, I have made a terrible mistake, and to avoid paying the highest price I must hide myself away from those that hunt me, and I can think of no safer place than on your island. I recall you telling me once, it is the most out of the way of places, appearing on no maps, unknown by modern society. Please, send me details of how to reach you and take me in. I have attached the address of my father, and urge you not to delay in making your decision. Yours, with all sincerity and faithfulness, J. I read his letter with growing concern and sent my reply by the next boat, agreeing to host him here on Aiton. No further letter came, but a telegram containing the details of his journey arrived the following week, saying that he would arrive on the 20th of December, just before Christmas. I was at the docks long before James was due to arrive. In all the years I had known him, I had found James to be level-headed, focused, and unflappable, and so the cryptic and harried nature of his letter had left me worried. When I saw the prow of the mailboat crest on the horizon, I hurried down to the quay to meet it. It was worse than I feared. The man who disembarked bore such little resemblance to the friend I knew that I scarce believed him the same. Thin and sunken-eyed, he moved warily through the small crowd of fishermen and sailors on the dockside and the relief that spread across his face on seeing me was palpable. He dropped the small cloth bag he'd been carrying and grasped my hand. Thank you. Oh, thank you, old friend. I cannot tell you how grateful I am, but please, please know we head to the house. I cannot bear being exposed like this. I promise I will explain. Well, as you can imagine, I felt not a little concerned at his conduct. From the looks his fellow passengers were shooting him, I can only imagine at his behaviour on the boat. I showed him to my trap. I had ridden down myself as I had not wanted to worry him with the unfamiliar presence of my footman. We began the rocky climb out of the village and along the coastal track to the hall. He said nothing on the journey, despite my cheery guide to the island as we drove. And before long, I had joined him in the rather spiritless silence he seemed eager to maintain. Though the weather had been fine when we left, dark clouds were bruising overhead on our arrival. And, as we walked under the portico, a colossal flash of lightning hit the sky, and thunder stormed about the place. James leapt out of his skin, and turned wildly about, scouring the landscape for an imagined attacker. Embarrassed, I hurried him inside, out of sight of the star. As I waited for him to come down before dinner, I reread his letter. He had, so far, given no indication as to what trouble he had got himself into or how, and I was desperate, for his sake, to know more. He appeared in the lounge at about five, in much the same state as I had left him. I ushered him into one of the brown leather chairs and pushed a brandy into his hand. It took two more drinks before he was settled enough to tell me what had occurred. Had I not experienced what came next, 
I would have dismissed his story as nonsense. But, as things went, I shall recount his tale exactly as it was told to me. I owe him that. He had, as I had heard, returned to his father's house in Carlisle the previous winter. His father, the vicar there, had passed his 90th birthday and was finding his duties weighing heavier on him than they had. James, having helped his father in his youth, felt compelled to return and assist him again now. All went well until January, when a letter arrived from the local hall, where a family of some standing had lived for many years. I will not name them here, though the educated will no doubt piece it together. They desired the reverend's help in the banishment of a ghost that had plagued their family for generations. The story went that years before, the head of the household at the time had been out riding in the snow one Christmas. He had come across two boys, playing in the drifts. But the rider was a cruel man, and all he saw were trespassers. Leaping from his horse, he demanded apology, which was swiftly given. But it was not enough. With the heel of his crop, he thrashed both boys until they bled and demanded they leave and not return. Thinking no more of it, he rode home. The two boys, bruised and tired, stumbled homewards, but did not make it. Their bodies were found the next day by a woodcutter, deep and dead and frozen in the snow. Though it reached the magistrate, no punishment was meted out to the Lord. They were, after all, trespassing, and the Lord and the Magistrate were friends. But late that night, according to servants who witnessed it, a great black bear stalked out of the woods, through the gardens, through the stout front door, through the house, and into the master's bedroom. A footman followed closely, though what he would have done I do not know but he saw what transpired in the room. The bear stood on its hind legs and told the Lord that with their last breath the boys had cursed him and all his line, and that from that day on the first heir would die before their time, and that the bear would come for them. Though the footman ran for the guards, by the time help arrived the Lord was torn and bloodied on the carpet of his room. Terror in his cold dead eyes. And so it had happened, that at some point early in their lives, each first-born heir to the fortune had died a gruesome death, all paying for the cruelty that their father had wrought. The bear had been seen many times, each time before a death, and now as their son approached his twentieth year, the family needed help. James, laying a hand on his father's shoulder, had offered his. It was, after all, an area in which he had some theoretical expertise. Following the family back to the house, pausing only to collect a heavy, leather-bound book, James went willingly to his destruction. On arriving at the house, an old and crumbling pile of the types at Pepperar landscape, he was shown swiftly to an upper room, where the son of the family was waiting. 
The details, I'm afraid, have left me. But by his account, James performed some ritual found in a book of his, meant to drive a curse away. It began, he said, quite promisingly. Candles lit, circles drawn, he began his incantations, tracing the lines of the verse with an ivory stick carved in the shape of a bulrush. And, much to his and the family's amazement, the bear appeared, not spectral or shimmering, but real and heaving and stinking of wet fur and blood, its muzzle still damp from a kill. Continuing his spell, even as the family cowered back against the wall, the bear looked angrily at James, reared up on its hind legs and drew back its clawed and monstrous arms to strike a killing blow. But, as the paw reached James's face, the spell ended. The bear vanished. The candles in the room went out, and, James said, a large oak that had stood in the garden for centuries fell with a thunderous crash, rotten to the core. The family, of course, were delighted. They lavished praise upon James, on his father for raising him, on all and everything that had brought them to him. Refusing their offers of payment, directing them instead to help with his father's charitable concerns, James took his leave and strode back to the rectory with the confidence of a man finally validated in his own self-belief. It did not last long. That evening, as he slept, he was disturbed by a low growl and the thick stench of wet fur. Sitting upright, he called out, but there was no answer, and on lighting the lamp at his bedside, James saw he was alone. But there, on the floor, were the damp paw prints of a bear. It had come, he said, most nights after that. He told me that once he had got over the shock, it hadn't been all that bad, though he slept rather less than he had before. But during those long nights, with the smell of the bear in his nostrils, the warmth of its breath on his neck, he had studied again and again the spell he had used to drive the thing out in the first place. It was, he said, with a thin laugh, a misplaced line. The spell, written in cuneiform, had, he had thought, been translated perfectly. But he had misread it, believing it to say that the evil spirit must, with the strength of the caster, be drawn out and dispelled to be contained elsewhere. James had thought himself covered. Though the vagueness of that elsewhere had worried him, he had brushed it off. Surely, if it was important, more weight would have been placed on it. But now, on rereading, the lines and dashes on the page arranged themselves more clearly, and the words stood out. To be contained elsewhere, lest it be contained in you. It was with a stoicism that, I must say, had by then left him, that he realised he had not ended the curse, only transferred it. He ran, then. Hoping the curse to be localised, that the spirit might be linked to the place, he had returned to Oxford. But within a few nights, the familiar smell was with him again. It was then he had written to me, I don't know to this day whether or not he believed he could outrun the thing, 
or if he simply wanted to buy himself some time. But I can say that after our talk and the drinks, he had seemed a little more himself. I rose early the next morning and was already at breakfast when James came down. He smiled broadly at me and sat and ate a large plate of kippers washed down with tea. I take it there were no visitors last night then, I had asked. James smiled. No, my friend, none at all. And thank you again for taking me in. I know how frightful I was acting yesterday. But I do feel that here, at last, I can relax. For a while, at least. I paused in my meal and asked, Tell me, James, what do you think the creature wants of you? You are, forgive me, a great deal older than its usual victims. James smiled mid mouthfuls. <laughs> yes, I suppose I am. The truth is, I do not know. I feel, I hope, that it intends to continue its fearsome reign over my line. But it will find itself scuppered. I don't intend on having any children to pass anything on to, let alone a curse. Careful, old man, I said. It might hear you. Now, it might seem strange to hear that after such a gruesome tale, the two of us would then proceed to have a very happy week together. But it's true. For his part, James had seen so many curious things in his career that had it not had such a personal involvement, the incident with the bear might not even have been deemed worth commenting on. For myself, I admit that at that time... I did not hold completely with James's account, and besides, having fought several campaigns, I had seen enough terror in the world not to be fazed by a little more. Together we hunted and fished. I showed my friend my island, my home. He was particularly curious about the stones, and about the records we held at the hall in that funny Athen script. So, on Christmas Eve, as we made our way to the harbour, we were in high spirits indeed. I should, perhaps, take this moment to tell you about the island's curious traditions at this time of year. Christmas on Athen is a joyous affair, much like the rest of the country. People gather, exchange gifts, and drink gorse wine and seaweed beer until long after midnight the youngest and the oldest together under starlight and snow. Traditionally, the family at the hall provide the food and the drink, each successive generation trying to outdo the last, determined not to be remembered as the ones who gave less or gave poorly. But the party itself is held on the dockside, down on the quay, in the cobbled square above the slipways, outside the door of the Gunwale public house on the night before Christmas, once the last ship has come in. In the centre of the square is the iron framework for the tree. Not a conifer or holly bush, but carefully trimmed stalks of gorse, artfully arranged to mimic a spruce or a pine. Hung with innumerable candles and glass fishing floats, as the sun goes down and the night sets in, the tree glistens into hoarfrost, as the water from the sea spray crashing from the waves on the rocks crystallises into glitter in the darkness.
Mummers fan out through the crowd and act out stories from the island's history. Carved masks and bright costumes mark them in the throng, and what seems at first nativity grows less and less Christian as the play goes on. Maybe it's the firelight, but the masks seem to change as the mummers dance. Names are whispered quietly in the flickers. Teronos, Bedeaus, Anku Badmaterni, even Meliorn of Life, Queen of the Aethan Witches. Just as the darkness threatens the festivities the most, a crash from high on the hill sends the demons running. The actors casting their masks into the fire as they pass. All eyes turn to the sea, and a man from the village, chosen weeks before, emerges from the surf as old Taz, ermine fringe cape over heavy waxed fishing gear, dripping beard of kelp and bladder axe, with a lobster pot of gifts. As he walks up the beach, a long taper is touched to his crown, and the pitch it's slathered in ignites. Lurching up the beach, terrifying the children with anticipation, he reaches into his pot as he passes and pulls out a gift. A shell, or a necklace of eel bones. Scrimshaw or the finely turned torso of a peg doll. That night, we arrived as the mummers were finishing their play. It is tradition that the Lord strikes the soundings on the hill that scares them all off. And as we passed down into the village, I gave the signal for the noise to be made. As we approached the sea, old Taz was just emerging from the water. I remember it so clearly. The firelight on James's face. How merry he looked. He was delighted when Taz offered him a gift. I was. I was pleased that the locals, who were not always as welcoming as they could be, were involving my friend. It did not last long. James's face fell as he opened the gift, a little wooden toy carved in the shape of a bear. He had flown into a rage, jabbing the gift into the chest of the poor man playing Taz, who stuttered apologies that the gifts were not chosen carefully but pulled from the pot at random. Others tried to pull my friend off the mummer, but to no avail. I waved towards the man I knew was due to end Taz's involvement. A stable boy named Cole, who wore the wicker costume of the officer, come to chase old Taz back to the sea. He was a burly lad, and succeeded in pulling Taz towards the harbour, but not before both men lost their footing and fell into the surf. A fisherman leapt swiftly to their help, pulling them both sodden and freezing onto the granite steps of the harbour wall, where they were met with blankets and spirits and warm pie. Back around the fire, under the tree, I dragged my friend away and back up the hill to the house. Shivering with rage and terror, the little toy bear already cast into the flames. I asked my man to take James to bed, a strong whisky pressed into his hand. I also asked that somebody be stationed by his door that night, should he need me. I sat up in the study, a whisky of my own and a fretful feeling about my brow. Shortly before midnight, one of the maids came to tell me she had spoken to the actor, who claimed no knowledge of the toy. They had been made by the local women, 
and it must just have been some ghastly coincidence that had placed it in my friend's hand that night. I dismissed her, promising a small gift to the man and his family for the trouble they had been through, and was left alone with my thoughts. It was about three when the scream came. Waking with a start, I rushed from the room, grabbing a sabre from the wall as I went. I bounded up the stairs and found James, limp and sobbing in the arms of a footman, the door to his room wide open. Ignoring my friend for the moment, I had gone inside. Other than the bedclothes, which had been thrown aside, nothing was out of place. But as I stood there, a scent began to emerge like the smell in the boot room when the dogs returned from a hunt, damp and bloody and sweating. I turned slowly about, but nothing lurked in the shadows. I only saw it as I was leaving. On the small table by the door, the little wooden bear, unharmed, unblemished, staring at the bed. Picking it up, I left, and we all went downstairs for a drink. None of us slept again that night. Little semblance of a Christmas was had that year. During the day that followed, some small attempt was made at the festivities, but we had little appetite for food, nor games, nor drink. We did, of course, burn the toy once again, but the events of the previous night repeated themselves. And over the days that followed, we tried again and again. We both, James and I, sat and watched that toy burn a thousand times. We watched as the cook chopped it to pieces with a cleaver, watched my mastiff chew it into damp little splinters. We threw it from cliffs, gave it to sailors departing for deep water. We even got the reverend to bless it and bury it in the chapel yard. But every night it appeared again on the table by the door in James's room. I had no explanation for it. James did, though and he muttered it over and over. I have brought the devil onto myself. Though his books lay back in his rooms at Oxford, Athens Library is splendid, and he spent every waking day after every sleepless night submerged in the stacks. He could be found before bed, scrawling words into the skirting, chanting verses not spoken aloud for generations. He even taught himself that blasted island script which is more than I ever managed, and appealed to the Athen gods for their help. But not one of the three listened. Things got worse. Now, in the morning, as well as the bear sat staring on the table, deep claw marks appeared in the wood of the door to James's room. It stank now, all day of that woody, animal scent, of breath stale with rotten meat stuck deep in shark teeth. James retreated into himself, growing quieter and quieter, as pale as the marble-faced girl in the hall. It came to a head on Twelfth Night. The decorations in the hall and in the harbour had gone. The tree by the water set on fire and pushed into the sea. I was sat alone again in my study, drink in hand. In the other, the sabre that I had taken to carrying, though what good against a spectre, I did not know. James had not come down that day, his books unopened in the library. 
This had not concerned me unduly. We had all succumbed to sobriety unfit for the season. It was like being back at war, after a battle, waiting for a wounded man to die. We all knew that's where it was headed. The beast clearly had no design on James's progeny. You know, it was funny. Throughout the whole damned mess, not once had I blamed James for bringing this terror to Aethel. Not once. Indeed, I had been grateful that a friend I had missed had returned, had turned to me for salvation. And I let him down. I could not protect him from the enemy he had called down upon himself. It was these thoughts that occupied me when my man, panting and red-faced, appeared at the door. Something was happening in James's room. Downing my drink, I followed. I did not run. I knew it would be no use. As we approached, the most appalling sounds could be heard through the wooden door. Tearing and ripping. The sound of something wet being thrown with force against a wall. Even I, I admit, was hesitant to try the handle. But I did, only to find it locked. Periodically, something heavy hit the door before being dragged back into the room. Eventually, all went quiet. And, like some third-rate ghost story, the door unlatched and swung slowly open. I will not detail, out of respect for my friend, what we found in the room. James was dead. And, in the middle of the carpet sat the toy, glistening in the firelight, covered in... We sealed the room, the echo, echo behind us. I have not been back since. We buried James quietly the next day. I have since then taken up his studies, some perversion within me drawing me to the very things that killed him. But I can't stop. Most of the staff left. I didn't blame them. They all kept the secret. Their replacements knew nothing of what passed here. Only that there is one room in the East Wing that remains locked at all times. I hold the only key. I write this all these years later, with a new year stretching wide ahead, because I fear I will not see another. No monster comes for me, just age, and my only fear at the end is that my friend will be forgotten, that we will both be forgotten, and there are lessons to be learned. That's the, um, the last entry in his ledger. I struggled to find the grave, 
but I did in the end. I'd been looking in the wrong place. I thought James would be in the chapel. One of the sideway stones, perhaps. But he wasn't. He was buried here, at the hall, in the yard surrounding the chantry. I've looked, and I think he's the only person not of the hall to be buried there. Which says something, I suppose. It's a simple stone, though there is a bear carved into the head of it. The dates are worn, unreadable, but the surname, James, is visible. I haven't been able to access the bedroom, James stated. Locked, is all I get when I ask, which is a lie, as I have heard someone walking heavy-footed inside, and I saw the flicker of a candle in the window last night. Anyway. The dog once again needs to be walked, and the moonlight here is too tempting not to take advantage of. But before I go, the staff have left me a gift, which is nicer than they often are. Uh, let's see. <laughs> yes. Yes, I expect. A little joke, I suppose. I can hear them laughing in the hall even now, though I did not hear them approach. Never mind. I'm used to it now. And they have been very good in keeping me here. I'll leave it here, on my desk. A little wooden carving of a bear. Good night. Merry Christmas. Thank you.